listeners to Snippet Sports Science Podcast, sponsored by EliteForum.com. This is Jared Coleman-Stark and Chris Cavillio. How are you doing today, Chris? Yeah, really good, thanks, Jared. How are you, mate? Pretty well. Today we're looking at the article, Skeletal Muscle Functional and Structural Adaptations After Eccentric Overload Flywheel Resistance Training, a Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis from some Spanish and Swedish researchers. What do you think of that, Chris? What is eccentric overload flywheel resistance training? I think at the moment you, you look a lot of flywheel training, I think it's actually starting to gain a lot of popularity. Versapulley's been around for a few years. K-Box, I know, is quite prolific on social media. And lots, of, lots of other really good products out there. And this kind of technology has been around for a while. However, it's started to, I feel, gain a resurgence in the, in the strength room. Yeah, exactly. What a lot of people may be more familiar with is the flywheel that exists in a lot of endurance training, the concentric only flywheel that we use in a bicycle or in a ergometer. Whereas what we're talking about here in the eccentric overload flywheel is a flywheel that doesn't just continuously spin in the same direction, it actually reverses the direction while you do the eccentric or negative portion of the lift. To start this off, the introduction to this paper is really good. I'm just going to read a couple of really important parts here, which gives you some good background around eccentric training, the advantages of it, and then from that point, the concept of flywheel training. When you look at eccentric training, it, it's actually been quite well studied in literature. In comparison with concentric exercise, which we're really used to doing a lot of, it's, char- it's actually characterized by producing higher peaks of force with lower muscle activation, metabolic cost, as well as a higher solicitation of type 2x fibers. Furthermore, despite producing high levels of muscle damage and soreness after the initial bout, eccentric-based resistance exercise training has been associated with effective muscle damage preventive mechanisms. So when you think about this, we always think that eccentric training is going to make us sore. It's the first couple of sessions because we're quite unaccustomed to this type of movement. However, once the athlete is used to it, as long as you keep it in the training session, it actually produces little or no muscle soreness at all. Exactly right, and we call that the repeated bout effect. Uh, So we've seen that eccentric exercise in general appears to be a more intense stimulus, and that stimulus seems to be much more directly on those type 2X fibers as well as the connective tissue rather than on the type 1 or 2A fiber that we associate with more endurance work or work capacity. And when you look at the difference between concentric and eccentric, the ability to produce force in the concentric phase limits the load or the weight to be used during training. As a result, and given that the higher force production capacity of skeletal muscle during eccentric actions, the loads used during traditional free weights or weight stack exercises are actually suboptimal during the eccentric phase of the movement. However, the optimization of the resistance training using a strictly eccentric regime is quite hard to do and technically difficult to apply. You usually need a lot of spotters and a lot of weight and actually have to be quite well trained to do it effectively. Absolutely. Whereas the flywheel is a type of device that makes this much more accessible for the everyday user. In addition, eccentric actions are rarely isolated in, in real life situations and they usually appear during the stretch shortening cycle, inducing a greater contribution of the elastic components in the muscle tendon unit The stretch shortening cycle increases the potential to produce force in the subsequent concentric action due to increased storage and use of elastic energy. And that's what makes eccentric overload training so good for power and particularly ballistic sort of movements like throwing, as it's a greater emphasis on that stretch shortened cycle with the elastic components and the transition from stretch to contract, 
as well as on those fast type 2x fibers. And if you look at the history of flywheel or iso-inertial devices, it was originally designed by Berg and Tex in 1994 to counteract the delirious effect of microgravity on skeletal muscle. This technology presents one of the most used exercise paradigms to produce eccentric overload during resistance training. They're more frequently employed, as I said earlier, as the flywheel exercise device, such as the VersaPulley, inertial training and measurement systems, and also the K-Box. These iso-inertial devices use the flywheel principle to produce unlimited resistance during the entire range of motion. As Jared said earlier, during the concentric phase, the force applied unwinds a cord or a strap connected to the shaft with the flywheel, which starts to rotate and store energy. Kinetic energy will increase as a function of the rotational speed. How do you push? The increased rotational speed, increase in kinetic energy. Once the concentric action is completed, the cord or strap rewinds and the, and the athlete must resist the pull of the flywheel by performing a braking eccentric muscle action. And then by using the appropriate technique, in other words, resisting the inertial force gently during the first third of the eccentric action, and then applying maximal effort to stop the movement at the end of the range of motion, eccentric overload can be produced in force and power values. Then the next concentric action is immediately initiated. So that's largely where that eccentric overload comes from, is not necessarily from the device per se, but very much in the technique with which you use the device. Because at the top of the concentric portion, you're applying a maximum amount of force into the flywheel. And then you can use your own maximum force that you produce in the concentric portion, and you can catch that where you're more limited with a deeper range of motion. So for example, at the top of the squat, you're much stronger. So you use your strength from the top of the squat, and then you use that amount of force that you've produced as the force that you're fighting at the bottom of the negative portion of the squat. I think that's a really good background to flywheel training and eccentric overload training. Probably time to actually get into the, the studies that have been uh, reviewed in this paper. Yeah, absolutely. So the research on flywheel overload has been going on for 20 years now. Most of it has focused on lower body muscle mass and healthy and active subjects. Typical sort of exercise we see in these studies is four sets of seven maximum repetitions over five to 13 weeks. Typically we see that flywheel overload training gets you 5 to 13% greater increases in muscle mass compared to traditional training with either a weight stack or free weights, 11 to 39% increase in maximal voluntary contraction, 12 to 25% increase in one repetition maximum, 21 to 90% increase in eccentric force, 10 to 33% increase in power, and 6 to 15% increase in jump ability, as well as 2 to 10% increase in running speed. That really sets it up quite nicely in terms of the potential of eccentric flywheel training. In respect to the actual review that they did here, Jared, do you want to go a little bit about the actual filters here? Overall, they used the preferred reporting items for systematic reviews and meta-analyses protocols, as well as the physiotherapy evidence database scale for assessing quality. And in total, when they look at the actual review, the total number of participants in the studies included were 276. Of these participants, 165 performed the flywheel training. Training interventions ranged from four to 10 weeks. The total number of sets was three to six and repetitions was six to eight per session. These studies use a training load of 15 to 20 seconds per set or between eight and 12 repetitions. Exercise devices employed were flywheel leg press, yo-yo squat, multi-gym flywheel, flywheel supine leg curl and prone leg extension devices. 
the most common moment of inertia employed was between 0.07 and 0.145 kilograms per meter squared. And of course, with always with maximal effort to compare for that maximal effort. Now, for those different uh, exercise devices, are any of those the device that we've used quite a bit? We've used the eccentric K-Box quite a bit ourselves. We have a lot of experience personally with this training method, and it'll be interesting to read this paper in light of the experience that we've had with it. I have a feeling it's similar to the yo-yo squat. Yeah, I've seen the yo-yo device, and the, the setup is similar. Now, also, I just want to throw an extra point about those participants. In the nine studies that this review included, only one of those studies included women, and they only included three women. So out of 276 participants in the meta-analysis, three of those are female, and all the rest are male. So essentially, almost all of this literature has been done in male participants. And also, just to confirm here, when you look at the type of movement that they produce, during the concentric phase, they were told to push with maximal effort. And during the eccentric phase, during the first third, they were told to resist gently and thereafter apply a maximal braking force to stop the eccentric wheel, to stop the movement. Right, so not purely maximal because of the technique. There is maximal through the concentric and then a gentle lowering for that first third and then maximal for the remaining two thirds of the negative portion. So just getting into the standardized mean differences that the study found for both concentric and eccentric strength, there was an SMD of 0.66 for power. It was 0.8 hypertrophy. 0.57, vertical jumping, 0.46, and for running speed, they got 0.41. So we see that the lowest effect size there is with the running speed at 0.41, and the largest is for power at 0.8. So this method is most likely most effective for power and then less effective for more specific movements, such as the running speed or jumping. What several studies have found is that typically in normal concentric eccentric resistance exercise, we find that the eccentric phase is typically underloaded about 40 to 55%. And I would agree with that. You know, your eccentric is easily 40 to 55% stronger than your concentric. And so if we're talking about maximizing the intensity throughout all of that, which to be fair, I don't think that you necessarily need to do for training. I think actually you could do purely concentric training and still get quite a few benefits. We, we typically have a one concentric only day in our own training, like a sled day or cycling, something like that. Uh, it's good to, to pull back on your eccentric a little bit, but if you want to maximize that eccentric overload, you're clearly missing out with traditional exercise, 40 to 55%. Whereas with the flywheel eccentric overload, what they found is that a Above concentric, there was 25% greater force produced with the flywheel during the eccentric phase for both men and those three women. Now, the researchers do note here that anecdotally, the use of lower inertia or high movement velocity during flywheel training may induce greater force gains. And to me, that's a little bit counterintuitive. To me, that would induce greater power outputs rather than force gains per se and that typically you would want a heavier flywheel similar to a heavier weight to produce more weight. However, for many athletes, what that could simply be an indication of, because they largely used soccer, handball, sort of recreationally active or physical education students, that these weren't elite strength and power athletes, that the heavy flywheels could simply be too heavy for them 
you know, they'd be sort of grinding away at the bottom with a really heavy flywheel and they might not really get those those good benefits of being able to spin the flywheel quickly. Whereas if you got a very strong athlete, I imagine it would be much better to use a larger, heavier, more inertial flywheel. And using it myself, I do know that when you put too much weight on, you actually don't do the proper technique. You're, no, you're, not at all. You're, you're, busy, you're too busy trying to actually slow the wheel down to get it going and you lose the effects of it. And sometimes I think about this a little bit like you have your strength speed day in normal isokinetic work and then mm. you have your speed strength day. So similarly in the eccentric world, you could have your heavy overload eccentric work and furthermore, you can then have you know higher speed eccentric work, which I think when you have athletes who, when you have uh, experienced athletes, you need to actually start to look in those little different areas about how you're going to improve performance. And once again, we always talk about tools and toolbox, and this potentially is one of those tools and toolbox where how do you actually continually get someone to develop when they're already at high strength and high power levels? Absolutely. It's just novel and interesting for the athletes. I mean, I originally got really interested in flywheel training because of uh, its existence in the space physical training literature that it was originally developed as a countermeasure against microgravity for astronauts because you can't, you know, you can't bring a weight stack into <laughs> into a spaceship. It's, right. it's too heavy and there's too much vibration while you're moving. So for you to be able to, um, for the spaceship to be able to absorb the vibration and for you to have a sufficient amount of load for a given astronaut, I mean, you can't bring hundreds of kilos um, into a spaceship, whereas with the uh, whereas with a flywheel, you have an essentially unlimited amount of force because your only limitation is your own ability to produce force. So the big concluding statement for me on this is very much that flywheel overload is very much for power exercise. And I think we find that in the emphasis on the stretch shorten cycle and particularly at the turnaround at 70 degrees for the leg press and 90 degrees for the upper limb that that's where you're really seeing these benefits is from that sort of transition phase from the eccentric to the concentric that we overload that a bit. And in fact, some of the uh, some of the overload that we might see might actually arise due to the eccentric overload, providing a greater stretch sort and cycle effect to the concentric loading. And then because you you have greater eccentric, at that turnaround point from the eccentric to the concentric, from the negative to the positive, that you then go faster in the concentric section. And that might be where some of the benefit is. Any other points there in the discussion which you think are salient? Uh, probably just the last one there is, like anything, you need a bit of specificity. So if you want to be using flywheel training to improve your jumping, you need to be applying that, in, well, your vertical jumping needs to be applied in a vertical plane of motion. And then similarly, if you're doing it for running speed, you need to apply it horizontally rather than vertically. I think here it's just says it's a really good training tool. That's how I kind of view it. It's a great way to stay in shape. Yeah, definitely. And it's portable. I probably see it with some of the athletes that I already do it. They quite enjoy it. Uh, for example, I have a CP sprinter who actually struggles squatting with a barbell on the back. And over time, I've been able to do the K-box squat and do double leg and then doing some single leg work. And I know when these athletes travel overseas, they do struggle with getting equipment because they can't necessarily train with a barbell. I do a lot of Smith machine, a lot of leg press work with them. And they've had issues in the past where they just haven't had that equipment available. 
this now opens up another avenue for them to actually take them when they travel. It's very portable and they can actually do uh, their training, their effective training, when they're overseas or not in the normal gym environment. That's a great point is we didn't really touch on the fact that the, you don't, you're not using a barbell. So for in the squat, you typically wear a harness or a belt or otherwise any other movement, you sort of have a handle or, um, or a wrap that you put around to be able to move it similar to using cables. So it's a, it's a big difference. I've heard that it deloads the spine because it, with the squat, because there's not the barbell. I don't know if that's actually true. I don't, as far as I know, no one's done sort of a EMG study or anything on that because you do still have like the straps on the shoulders. So I'd, I imagine for like squatting. So I do imagine that you're still applying some force through the spine. You would think so. But it does feel more like a leg exercise than a back exercise. That's correct. Yeah, and you are a little bit more in that. Oh, that's great. Thanks, Jared. All right. Thank you, Chris. And thank you, listeners, for joining in today. We hope you enjoyed it. Thanks again to EliteForm.com. Remember to visit us on all the socials at Snippet Science and also download us on iTunes, give us a review, or alternatively, you can listen to us on our website at SnippetScience.com. Damn, da, da, da.